You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, friends, welcome back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for tonight's broadcast. Generally speaking, on Thursday nights, we have open phone lines and headlines from around the world, but since I have a guest lined up for you tomorrow night, I'm going to open the phone lines up tonight, and we're going to go over... News that's breaking from around the world. So if you have any comments, questions, complaints, criticisms, or helpful suggestions, the phone lines will be open tonight. 1-800-313-9443 will get you up and on the air. But first off tonight, I want to pick up from what we were talking about on the program. In fact, last night, we were discussing the Palestine question, as you might recall. And amongst other things, one of the things that we discussed on that program was the recent admission just earlier this month from the Israeli military censors of a 24 to almost 25-year-old secret that everyone already suspected anyway, which is that Israel uh, commandos were in fact in charge of the assassination of the Fatah co-founder Al-Wazir, sorry, Khalil Al-Wazir. And uh, this was, again, something that most people already suspected, but it's finally been approved by the military censors, and it was written up in in Israeli Daily earlier this month. It was reported on by the Associated Press, and we took a look at that from the Himalayan Times Israel acknowledges killing Fatah co-founder. And uh, once again, I'll link that up in the show notes for tonight's episode as well. But uh, we should also, uh, for people who managed to uh, to click through on that link and take a look at the actual uh, uh, story itself, and once again, I exhort you all to do that whenever I talk about these stories, because although I do my level best to talk about these stories in a fair and representative way, of course, there will always be details and things that get left out, and I hope that you are taking a look at these stories for some of those details. Well, one of the details is that one of the people involved in that commando assassination of uh, the Fatah co-founder was, in fact, none other than Ehud Barak who I'm sure we are all familiar with as the current defense minister of Israel. And uh, here's a little story that maybe slipped under some people's radars from a couple of days ago from RT.com. Ehud Barak to step down as Israel defense minister and retire from politics. And this story says, quote, Hawkish Israeli defense minister Ehud Barak has announced that he will retire from politics after the next election. The news comes as surveys suggested his party was headed for defeat in the upcoming parliamentary polls. Barak, a former prime minister of Israel, enjoyed a surge in popularity following Operation Pillar of Defense earlier this month. But opinion polls show that his independence party is unlikely to win more than three seats in Israel's upcoming parliamentary elections. Barack's faction, which currently holds five seats in the Knesset, splintered from the Labour Party in 2011. And it goes on from there, but suffice it to say, yes, Barack, who is now 70 years old, is on his way out of the Knesset and out of Israeli politics. And, of course, he retires on a high note after receiving that little surge in popularity after bombing Gaza to smithereens, exactly as predicted and exactly as planned. Of course, the the entire reason, or one of the very good reasons why this was planned for this particular point in November 2012 is, of course, to create that little surge in popularity, that little rally around the flag uh, poll boost that always comes in the wake of such military adventures. And that is exactly what happened here, as this article notes. So whether or not there's any connection between his retirement and the earlier um, 
the revelation earlier this month that he was involved in the assassination of a foreign political leader, the extrajudicial killing, and of course completely uh, against international law, well, uh, I don't think there's probably any connection because unfortunately, as we noted yesterday on the program, I'm not holding my breath waiting for the ICC, the International Criminal Court, to prosecute Barack or any of the other criminals who have been involved in these extrajudicial assassinations, like Barack Obama or others, uh, to, to come before the court anytime soon. Unfortunately, these people tend to retire on their nice, cushy pensions. On that note, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. Tonight, once again, we are going over news headlines and taking your calls on any subject you'd like to call in and talk about. So the phone lines are wide open at 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443, and we'll be happy to take your comments on air. But let's move along to more things from Israel and Palestine. Just a couple of other news stories that caught my eye in the past 24 hours that I wanted to share with all of you. One of them, a particularly interesting story, again coming from RT, IAEA hacked over Israeli nuclear program. This coming out just earlier today, it says, quote, The UN nuclear agency has confirmed that one of its servers has been hacked. A previously unknown group posted contact details of more than 100 experts working with the IAEA, calling on them to act against Israel's alleged nuclear activities. The group called Parastu, Farsi for the swallow bird and a common Iranian girl's name, publishes, published the names along with a statement, Parastu hacks IAEA on November 25th. Israel owns a practical nuclear arsenal tied to a growing military body, and it is not a member of internationally respected nuclear, biochemical, and chemical agreements, the group said, demanding the experts sign a petition calling for an open IAEA investigation into activities at Israel's Negev Nuclear Research Center, located near the city of Dimona. It is commonly believed that Israel possesses nuclear weapons, though it has never been confirmed nor denied, though it has never confirmed nor denied the fact. Tel Aviv, however, takes a hawkish stance against Iran, claiming that it's seeking to create weapons of mass destruction and describes the Islamic Republic as the greatest threat to the Middle East. Tehran has strongly denied any allegations, insisting that its nuclear program is peaceful. IAEA spokesman, a spokeswoman, Gil Tudor, said the agency deeply regrets this publication of information stolen from an old server. She added that the server has been shut down some time ago and agency experts had been working to eliminate any pos- possible vulnerability in it, even before it was hacked. The IEA was doing everything possible to help ensure that no further information is vulnerable, she said in an email, AP reports. So an interesting little story here from uh, from the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is, of course, always trying to look for any possibility that it can indict Iran for making nuclear weapons, but has never inspected the alleged nuclear arsenal of Israel and the alleged 400 warheads that they have stockpiled, because um, Israel has never signed up to it. 
And that's uh, perfectly tickety-boo and just fine for the international community, the international community as defined by the United States and the Western media. But uh, but Iran, of course, that's just completely off the table, even though they are conforming to the IAEA's inspections and are allowing them. So, uh, so again, we see the double standards at work, and we see an entirely different double standard in this story, where the big story is this, this hack. Oh, hackers, apparently Iranian hackers, because they use a Farsi name, or they claim this group, this Parastu, has, is actually responsible for it. And, uh, and they've managed to hack into an old, dis, dis, unused server of the IEEA and have published the, the contact details of 100 IEEA workers. That's a, that's a pretty, um, pretty uneventful hack, one might say. Especially when one can, can, compares that type of hacking to the type of creation of, oh, I don't know, Stuxnet or the Flame Virus or any of these other ones that are now openly admitted to have come from the U.S. and Israel uh, military intelligence defense sector with uh, the billions of dollars that they're shuffling off into these black projects and that are bringing down entire nuclear industries and and the nuclear uh, manufacturing equipment and everything in, in Iran and the, the reactors. But, uh, but now that we have hackers who have stolen 100 names from an old server at the IAEA, I think that goes to show the disparity of the two levels of what people are working with here and uh, and where the, the two sides of this really are. But uh, I, I'll w- wager a, a bet that uh, that this hack will be portrayed as just another sign of the rogue, wayward is- Iranian nation and the fact that they have this legion of cyber hackers working full-time trying to bring down the great American Satan, etc., etc., which, of course, was exactly the narrative that they tried to form in the wake of the uh, the hacks that were allegedly, supposedly taking place on American banks recently. And that story kind of went away. Uh, I guess nothing really uh, came of it or nothing that was propaganda worthy. But they were, were for a time trying to blame that on Iran. And apparently the, the legion of cyber hackers they have, which, uh, which again, uh, I guess, have kicked into action in this story. And it just goes to show the... Apparently, the biggest damage they can do or are willing to do is to leak the names of some of the workers of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Again, compared to something like Stuxnet, it's uh, like comparing tiddlywinks to nuclear bombs, and uh, the pun is intended there. So, again, just an interesting piece of that puzzle. And another piece following up from what we were talking about yesterday, we mentioned the vote that is going to be taking place in the UN General Assembly on the Palestinian uh, non-membership status upgrade. So whether or not uh, Palestine will become an actual non-member state of the UN General Assembly, which is just about the most meaningless designation that any state can actually have, but they're still hoping for it and uh, are putting that forward for a General Assembly vote. And there's some more information on that from the Asia Times, atimes.com, which had this story today, Palestinian State Vote a Crisis Moment. And this story reads in part, quote, Thursday is shaping up as a big day in Palestinian history. Exactly 65 years after United Nations resolution partitioning British mandatory Palestine was adopted and rejected at the time by the Arabs, the General Assembly will vote on Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas's proposal for non-member state status for Palestine within the borders of the period between the 1948 and the 1967 wars. Abbas is expected to win overwhelming approval, and while legal experts differ on what exactly the new status would entail, a a heated and potentially explosive diplomatic confrontation with Israel is guaranteed. 
Meanwhile, though, some predict violence and chaos in the days ahead. A surprising new moderate reappears. Though some predict violence and chaos in the days ahead, a surprising new moderate reappeared miraculously on the Palestinian horizon. His internal rivals blown away by Israeli airstrikes, Hamas's Politburo chief, Khalid Mishal, the erstwhile hardliner once targeted by a high-profile assassination fiasco ordered by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu some 15 years ago during his first term in office, endorsed a Palestinian state in the 1967 lines and embarked on a renewed push for reconciliation with Abbas's Palestinian Authority. He even hinted that Hamas could switch to non-violent resistance. This is no less than a tectonic shift in the militant organization's rhetoric. Michel still refuses to recognize Israel officially, but his support for Abbas's UN bid is a big step up from recent times where, when hardliners sidelined him, arguing amongst other things that declaring a Palestinian state in the 1967 borders would implicitly recognize the Zionist entity. Moreover, amid victory celebrations and boastful threats, the militants vowed to rearm, but at the same time, a prominent Gaza cleric, Suleiman al-Daya, issued a fatwa, a religious decree, against breaking the truce. It's hard to say how much of the rhetoric will hold up with the passage of time. Michal and Abbas tried to reconcile last year with their, when their agreement was torpedoed by Hamas's Gaza faction. Now the Gazan leaders took, took a beating, and despite the organization... Despite that, the organization itself was strengthened. Within Hamas, a more pragmatic and moderate faction appears to have gained the upper hand. Whether this will last depends on a myriad of factors, and in no small part on the developments in neighboring Egypt, which are hardly predictable at present. So this uh, this story goes on to talk about some of these tectonic shifts that are happening right now in Palestinian internal relations, but it is certainly important uh, for what's happening in the region that suddenly Hamas's more uh, more dovish wing, I suppose, is is getting a place at the table. So we have this Khalid Michel stepping up and apparently becoming more of a voice within Hamas for actual uh, going ahead with the negotiation process, sticking to the 1967 lines, etc. So whether or not this actually continues to hold is anyone's guess, but. It's interesting to see this developing as part of the fallout, again, excuse the pun, from the uh, Operation Pillar of Cloud. And we'll see uh, whether the assassination of Hamas's more extremist uh, elements will, will lead to this shift. But it is an interesting shift that's taking place, and all within the context, of course, of this UN membership bid. Once again, and there's differing opinions as to what this will mean, if anything, for Palestine, should it go ahead. But at the very least, it's something that can't uh, be vetoed by the Security Council. There's no way the U.S. can just simply dec- decree that this vote has no merit. It, uh, it can pass by a two-thirds majority in the UN General Assembly which it is almost guaranteed to have. So uh, I think we can safely assume that it will go forward from here. But again, what this means for Palestinian relations with Israel is anyone's guess. And as I mentioned yesterday, it does at least theoretically entitled, entitle Palestine to bring Israel before the International Criminal Court to answer on war crimes charges. 
But again, as I've stated, I don't expect that that will be happening anytime soon, or if so, that the International Criminal Court would take it seriously. Because as we know, the only international criminals that the ICC are going to prosecute are, well, so far, people, madmen, and tyrants in Africa, which is all well and good. I'm certainly no uh, fan of them, but uh, but obviously we need to start tackling some of the real war criminals responsible for some of the greatest war crimes of our time. And of course, I don't mean great in the, uh, in the positive sense. I mean great in the size and scope of what's been waged in the names of the people of America and Britain and Canada and many of the other Western NATO members who have, of course, invaded and occupied Afghanistan for over 11 years, just for starters, let alone the torture that went on at Abu Ghraib and the secret prisons and all of that shenanigans. All right, we will be back after this break with some more news and open phones. If people are sick of me droning on for hour after hour, please, by all means, get in touch. 1-800-313-9443. We'll put your views on air. And until then, let's take a short break. We'll be right back after these messages. The Corbett Report is brought to you by the 2010 Video Archive DVD. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. All right, friends, we're back, and let's continue plowing through the news and headlines that are making headlines around the world. And I wanted to shift into some science news next. Actually, uh, starting with a story that is of little political consequence, but I find fascinating. So let's cover it anyway. It's uh, it's on Yahoo News, of all places, and it's called Real Benjamin Buttons Brothers, Matthew and Michael Clark Are Aging Backwards. It says, by the look of their home, Tony and Christine Clark are raising two rambunctious seven-year-old boys. Model train tracks and Monopoly pieces are scattered on tables and cartoons flicker on the TV set. But the Clark's two sons are grown men who share only the same interests and emotional fluctuations of little boys. Like the character portrayed by Brad Pitt in the 2008 film The Curious Case of Benjamin Buttons, Matthew 39 and Michael 42 are aging backwards. Diagnosed with a terminal form of leukodystrophy, leukodystrophy, one of a group of extremely rare genetic disorders that attack the myelin or white matter in the nervous system, spinal cord, and brain. In the Clark's case, the condition has not only eroded their physical capacities, but their emotional and mental states as well. Only six years ago, both brothers were holding down jobs and growing their families. Today, they spend their days in the care of their parents, both in their 60s, playing with Mr. Potato Head, fighting over Monopoly, and in rare lucid moments, struggling to understand why their lives have changed so dramatically. All right, again, no no big, deep political meaning or, or ramifications to this type of story, but I find this type of story always interesting and refreshing and, and valuable for us to, to continue to reflect on when these types of bizarre science stories come up. Because once again, I think sometimes in our modern age, we can become quite cynical and quite immune to some of the truly incredibly bizarre, strange and unexplained and inexplicable things that are happening in our world. Of course, this is uh, attributable to the genetic disorder they have, and we can work out why it's happening, etc. But 
once again, this is the type of story that if you simply told someone about it, uh, they would, unless there was documentation and you could show the, the, the video of these, these two brothers and you could document where they live and their names, I think a lot of people would dismiss it. Oh, that's just absolute craziness. That's fiction. That could never happen in real life. Well, it's good to be reminded from time to time that the world is not only stranger than we imagine, it's stranger than we can imagine. And there are all sorts of truly bizarre things happen. And when you have 7 billion people on the planet, there's going to be all sorts of variations within that that, uh, that are almost unimaginable. So there you go, a couple of brothers aging backwards and uh, just a, another interesting and bizarre story that helps to keep our, our own scientific understanding in, in place, I think, in its proper place, which is to say we do not know everything and uh, there's much more in this world than we can, can be explained within our own personal uh, understandings and it's good to keep that in mind. As Especially as we move into the next scientific subject I wanted to cover tonight, which is more of the global warming bull that is making the rounds. And I note with a heavy heart that since uh, President uh, Dictator Obama has been voted in for four more years, it seems that the pendulum is starting to swing the other way. And although I think it was quite obvious for the previous four years that the global warming myth has been soundly trounced on and uh, was losing the PR battle for the hearts and minds of the general public, I think that is going the other way now, and it seems that there is more of a renewed interest in this, and more people are signing on to this idea that climate change is clearly being driven by carbon dioxide. <sighs> well, and again, this is the type of topic that no matter how much you cover it and how much information you give people and how many links you give them to how many studies, they'll always say, well, this, this, there's just no substance here. Why don't you say something of substance on this issue? So again, let's go and try to dig up some more facts to refute the constant stream of bull and propaganda that's coming out on these issues. And we'll start with this one. This was by way of uh, by way of Climate Depot, which is pointing out a Twitter war that's happening right now between warmest Bill McK- McKibben and meteorologist Joe Bastardi. And basically, uh, McKibben is trying to make the point that the last three year- three years are in the all time top five for the number of named Atlantic tropical storms. And the implication of this supposedly is that, oh, there must be a lot more Atlantic tropical storms now than there were in past years, and that is because of climate change, and that is because of carbon dioxide. There's several degrees of assumptions in there, which we can attack at each and every point, but one point point that uh, meteorologist Joe Pastardi makes is that there are not more numbered Atlantic tropical storms now because there are more storms. It is simply because there are more named storms these days than there were back in the 1950s. And McKibben makes this point by saying that uh, 10 to 15 storms in the last three years would never have been named in the 1950s. They wouldn't have been included. So he goes on to make the point that, in fact, uh, it was almost exactly equal back in the 53 to 55 range as to the last three years. And in fact, the storms are weaker today than they were in the 1950s. So once again, when you actually start breaking down the numbers and the facts behind this warmest propaganda, ooh, more named, more numbered tropical storms, ah, more more named tropical storms are are happening, it, it actually blows up in their face. And I'll just throw a couple of links into a couple of other stories uh, that I want people to take a look at, but I couldn't possibly do justice to without actually showing you each and every graph and going through a lot of statistical detail. 
One is called Mythbusting Ramsdorf and Foster, which is taking apart a recent uh, warmest paper that's uh, attempting to basically remove the, the ENSO, the El Nino Southern Oscillation from global temperature data, which cannot be done reliably through multivariate cor- correlation analysis, as they t- attempt to argue. But again, that's a deep technical scientific paper, and it doesn't make for an easy uh, read, so I will put the link in for you to read yourself. Another paper uh, refuting uh, the uh, the U.S. hurricane intensity increasing meme. Once again, from whatsupwiththat.com. That'll be in the show notes for tonight's episode. All right, friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio. It is the 28th of November, 2012, for those of you stateside, the 29th of November here in Japan. And tonight we're going over news and headlines that are breaking around the world. Phone lines are also open. Apparently no one agrees, disagrees, or has anything at all to say. So uh, we will continue to leave the phone lines open just in case anyone wants to get in. 1-800-313-9443. But let's move on to what I hope will be some positive news some helpful positive news i don't know i i hope it turns out that way but it's uh, something that's very much in flux i'm referring to what's happening in the eu right now in terms of the success the secessionist movements that are taking over and in, in the eu and uh there's a lot on that uh, in that regard there's also some hopeful signs coming out of egypt and the pro the continuing protest movements against the recent attempts by uh, President Morsi to basically make the president's position into a dictatorship. And it's good to see the people of Egypt actually standing up and not going along with that and continuing the revolution, which does need to continue in that country. But I do cover that with James Evan Pilato in the latest edition of New World next week, which will be released in the next few hours. So I hope you'll stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for that. But right now, let's move along to uh, the some of this news coming from the EU, and we'll go to stratrisks.com, our, the home of our good friend Michael Vale, who has this story up, Catalonia secession is outright rebellion against the EU. And this story says, quote, In Catalonia, Spain, secession-minded parties of different political stripes won a majority in regional elections. While those differences make secession unlikely, independence drives in Europe are likely to spread. There's no mystery to the sudden upsurge in secessionist movements in Europe. Fiscal woes, monstrous unemployment, and the unsustainable welfare state should make anyone ask why they should remain in a going-nowhere economy in a largely powerless state under the thumb of Brussels. The pain has been particularly acute in Catalonia. The prosperous and industrious northeast corner of Spain, whose 7.5 million people are the largest group of citizens in continental Europe, with a distinctive language, but no nation. Catalans are frustrated that they contribute 8.5% more in revenues to the central government in Madrid than they get in return. What's more, their tax revenues go to Madrid first before they are remitted back in diminished form, unlike some of Spain's other 16 autonomous regions. Makers get tired of takers. But the real failure is less that of Spain than that of the European Union. Europe hasn't worked out well for Spain, whose economy has tanked in part due to the EU's single currency, whose strength undercuts Spain's export competitiveness, and whose low interest rate created the mother of all property bubbles. Spain, after a few years of credit-fueled prosperity, now has a 25% unemployment rate, a 20% poverty rate, a tanking GDP, and more than 1 million people who have fled the country. This isn't what the grand bargain of the European Union membership was supposed to be all about. 
All right, the story goes on from there, but suffice it to say, it seems that people are putting the pieces together and realizing that the grand dreams that the globalists sold the people in the name of the European Union are not coming true. And in fact, they are the nightmares that a lot of people find themselves trapped in right now as the economic uh, situation there in the European Union continues to deteriorate. And people are seeing through all the lies and propaganda and spin about how great this globalization is and how great regional governments are and how it will save us from everything. And people are starting to put the blame where it needs to be put on the ECB and in the, uh, the, the, the positions of power, I suppose, in Brussels. And that's a good thing. That is a good thing that people are realizing who's really behind this, what's really happening, and what they have to do to get out of this which is to take matters into their own hands and get out of the European Union one way or another, by hook or by crook. And what what better way to do that than separating from the member states of the EU? And I think that is a healthy thing. Of course, this is about decentralization and localization of control. So the more local, the better. And if people can secede even from their nation states, hey, why not? And of course, this ties into the recent secessionist idea that we've seen cropping up in the United States as well, where we've seen uh, some of the states, in fact, all of the states now having signed on to petitions or people within those states signing on to petitions to move for secession in the wake of Obama's re-election. And I have my misgivings about this idea because I think it's going to be basically front-run by the media who are going to call these people crazy and paranoid and are going to highlight a certain minority and subsection of the people who are contemplating this idea and are basically going to portray them as all racist, reactionary lunatics and, uh, and are going to try to basically tar everyone who has that idea with the same brush. So I have my misgivings about what this uh, latest idea in the U.S. is all about, but at least in Catalonia and places like this, this is much more than talk. This is something that's been talked about and and actively worked towards for for decades now, so it is at least a possibility. It's on the political table, and uh, certainly my hat's off if the people of Catalonia can do that and can get out of the European Union by separating from Spain. Why not? By hook or by crook, let's bring the globalists down. On that note, we do have a caller on the line. In fact, we have a few. So let's go to your calls and uh, take your comments. First, we'll go to Lee in Wyoming. Lee, thank you for your call tonight. Good to have you here. Boy, James, you're hard to keep up with today. You're just ripping through it. (laughs) I'm all over the place. (laughs) So Um, bring on anything you want. um, I read an article today. I tweeted you the the link to it um, where Brzezinski is... uh, encouraging Obama to stand up to um, Benjamin Netanyahu and also against Iran and their nuclear weapons. And the same article also mentioned that uh, Netanyahu helped overthrow the Shah and, you know, which was, so now he's trying to, I don't know, overthrow Iran again. I don't know. It seems like he's playing chess again. And I was wondering um, if you read this, what your thoughts were on it. I'm sorry, I must admit I haven't checked my Twitter feed at all today, so I haven't seen that article, but I'm very much interested in it. And I think there is a, uh, again, there's the Brzezinski power faction behind Obama that wants to use more of the soft power approach and um, sort of Machiavellian manipulations to achieve these types of overthrows. So it isn't surprising to me that he would be arguing for that that type of approach rather than the, the what would have been the Romney, neocon, bomb them all to hell approach. But uh, I'll be interested to take a look at that, and uh, I'll put the link in the show notes as well for people. Okay, thanks. Yeah, it just seems like he's playing chess, and again, 
he, like he always does, and I just thought it was an interesting article. Thanks, James. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the link. I will uh, keep my eye out for that, and I will read it with uh, with relish because that's the exact type of real behind-the-scenes manipulations that I think we have to keep our eye on. It's not, of course, about Obama or Romney. It's about the people who are advising them. And Brzezinski has uh, always been an important person in the Obama administration, one way or another, or at least his faction, his his clique. All right, let's move along. We have Mike in Kentucky. Mike, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, on the global warming stuff, uh, you know, I'm listening on the internet, so there's a kind of few minute delay on my connection, but... Um, Carbon dioxide in your, uh, you know, your sport utility vehicle in the driveway uh, is it's it's so severe that it it's melting the polar caps on Mars and causing you know weird spots out there on other planets and things that uh, mm-hmm. that need to be you know we need to stop uh, what we're doing right now. Obviously, it's uh, it's affecting the whole solar system. Yeah, I, th- I think what we need to do is put a tax on it so that it can go into the pockets of Al Gore and his friends. I think that'll solve it. Well, what what could be looked up though is uh, something called the Sagittarian Dwarf Galaxy. Uh, tonight you can't hardly see the Milky Way, but Saturn is right beside the Moon, and, and this time of the year it's pretty obvious because the planets and the uh, and the Sun track quite a bit farther to the south than the Milky Way does. The Milky Way goes across the sky much farther north than the planets track across the sky. If you watch over a few a few clear nights, you'll notice that. And uh, <clears throat> we're not part of the Milky Way galaxy. They were uh, finally confirming uh, the suspicions on that. The plane that the planets generally travel in, the plane of the ecliptic or whatever it's called uh, of our solar system, is uh, probably, I'm going to say, maybe 50 degrees off uh, alignment, and that's because we're actually flying through merging with the arm of the galaxy that, uh, that uh, I guess, previously uh, people thought, assumed we were part of this galaxy. And we're, we're coming on edge on with the, the plane of the Milky Way. And so there's likely a lot more uh, cosmic rays and energy that, they don't. They don't have a good explanation for whether it can cause cloud formation and uh, be affecting our weather. Uh, it looks to me like that they're doing plenty of stuff to try to mitigate something. Now, uh, a lot of people suspect that they're spraying aluminum and barium and things like that to try to uh, stop global warming uh, or manipulate the weather somehow. I think they can inflate high pressure systems. Um, or even create a high-pressure system and cause moisture to be vented to space uh, overnight. And this is, you know, on clear nights, uh, the heat rises out of the atmosphere and it's actually lost to space. And so um, if they can create high-pressure systems that can actually steer uh, the weather fronts as they come in across the country, uh, it's a good it's a good bet that the high pressure system that they created or inflated and intensified actually steered sandy into the coast uh, in a, a much more uh, at a greater angle and speed than it would have if it was naturally it, it, more than likely it probably would have went on up into Nova Scotia but they inflated a high pressure system I have my suspicions that they're able to do that I've seen them many a days out ahead of a front that's coming in 
an intense spray program where the jet contrails just crisscross the sky and a clear blue sky in the morning at eight, nine o'clock in the morning completely goes overcast uh, during the course of a day. And, right. uh, well, I, I agree. I think that this is one of the big missing pieces of the puzzle that people don't look at when it comes to climate change is, well, if the climate is changing, how is it being manipulated? And I think not a lot of people put some of those manipulations into their variables, and instead they're looking at carbon dioxide, which I find laughably silly when uh, when it comes to an understanding of the climate system. But uh, uh, that that part about the the galaxy is fascinating i i must confess total ignorance to that do you have any links or anything that any information people can just look up type on into google just start typing into google sagittarian dwarf galaxy and you'll come up with several articles about it there's other observations throughout the solar system that suggest that something is going on uh, another article series of articles has been uh, posted in the last few years about the diminishment of the heliosphere the sun's solar wind that helps to charge up the uh, aurora, uh, or not the aurora, the uh, Van Allen belts, the magnetic belts that are particle belts around the Earth, uh, actually protect us from cosmic rays. Well, the entire solar system has drifted into this area of more cosmic rays. Those have increased something like 50% at the same time as the sun's heliosphere has dropped by 50%. So we are experiencing a lot more cosmic rays. Cosmic rays can wreak havoc with electronics. Um, they can hit your computer and cause random errors. Um, you know, all of our airplanes are now computer. You know, there's computers that uh, fly and drive cars and everything. So, as co- uh, you have to wonder if, uh, in the way, how do you get, you know, fleets of airplane pilots to participate in this, or the suppliers, the fuel suppliers, and the and the refiners to participate in this and keep it all under their hat. There has to be a pretty good cover story, I think. Yeah, and that cover, the cover story may be that they are uh, that they're helping to save the planet from cosmic rays because they're putting out these particles in the atmosphere that could actually diminish or block a lot of them. Right under under the right conditions, uh, they they were pro- they are probably coming in in fairly predictable directions. You know, so they're so they attempting can, to mitigate that, or at least that's what they can say. Well, I uh, think that's one of the cover stories. Right, you know, that might be right. a cover story is how they're getting people to participate in it and keep it quiet because it could cause a, you know, it could cause a lot of havoc mm-hmm. if it was, if the public was just all of a sudden told that, yes, uh, we're, you know, you, you we're experiencing uh, uh a storm of cosmic rays. Right. Now, these what stories are, are out about there. It? Well, obviously, there's going to be a lot of different cover stories they can fall back on. That one is particularly fascinating. I haven't heard much about it, so I will look it up, and I'll uh, put some links in if I find any in the show notes. So uh, thanks for that, Mike. Let's move along. We have another caller on the line. We also have Don in Michigan. Let's bring Don into the conversation. Don, thanks for calling in tonight. Hey, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. No, I, I just I called in. Uh, I'm a novice on everything. Uh, last caller just blew me away. I almost hung up. I'm like, I don't have any of that to add. <laughs> it's hard uh, to follow up a call like that. Yeah, no doubt. It's, yeah, the, the, I mean, I know they can energize the, you know, the ion, ionosphere and, and manipulate the hurricanes, and, and I'm, I'm familiar with HARP and, and this and that. I didn't know what your main topic was. I just kind of jumped in, but it Oh, absolutely. Uh, Any Open phone lines, anything you want to talk about. 
Well, what what was it? Did you have a main topic? Because I just, uh, we're just covering just news tonight. So we've talked about global warming a little bit. We've talked about Catalonia secession in the EU. We've talked about Israel, and apparently uh, hackers have gotten into IAEA databases and released the names of some of the workers uh, so, and to pressure them into looking at the Israeli uh, nuclear program. But really, all over the board tonight. Oh you know, no! It sounds like it. And yeah, it really does. And, and and like I said, I'm a, I'm a novice on everything. Um, you know, I'm familiar with HARP and I'm familiar with you know Israel and 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 their impact and their uh, influence. I guess I want to say. Um, I don't know. I don't know what your your input yeah. is on. on well, on, I appreciate uh, you calling in, Don, and uh, I I hear you, and I feel in the same boat myself a lot of times. I am an office on all of this, and I'm just sort of trying to cover what I can. But uh, but there's a lot going on in the world tonight. What what do you think about the secession movement that's happening in the U.S. right now? We talked a little bit about that before, where there's a lot of people right now who are signing on to these petitions to potentially start secession movements within their states to get out of the federal government now that Obama's been reelected. What's your take on, on this movement and where it's heading? Uh, my, my opinion is it's, it's a very good uh, 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 flashpoint just to show uh, the government that everybody is uncomfortable, that nobody does like what's going on. Uh, one fear I do have is uh, with the NDAA and, and with everything else, uh, I, I worry about the people that do sign the petition that, you know, did you just put your name on the list kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's, so, uh, that's okay, the unfortunate that's political reality that we find ourselves in these days, that that question is not paranoid conspiracy fantasy. That is very much hardwired into law with the NDAA now. So people do have to actually think about political protests because it could very well mean their lives. And that's a, a that, horrific that, thing for, for Americans to arrive at after in being the beacon of hope and freedom for so long. Absolutely. And you know what? I'm, I'm not afraid to, uh, I'm not afraid to call your show. I'm not afraid to put my name anywhere because we gotta stand up somewhere. Well, I'm, appreciate that very much. Without more people standing up, they will never get the message that we will not back down. So my hat's off to you, Don in Michigan, and everyone out there who's standing up. On that note, we've gotta, uh, take a break, so let's just, uh, take a short break and we'll be right back. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Here we are in the final few minutes of tonight's episode of Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And just a uh, shortly after tonight's episode airs, the show notes for tonight's episode will be going up there at CorbettReport.com slash radio. And you can get all of the links to all of the articles, the many varied articles we talked about in tonight's program. And I just wanted to finish up tonight with one uh, one more story out of left field. There's a lot of different uh, stories we've been covering tonight, but here's one that was sent in recently by a listener. And I do appreciate the tip because I find this one particularly fascinating, not just because I'm Canadian, but here it is from the Globe and Mail, globeandmail.com. Mark Carney leaves Ottawa for mission to Britain. Quote, the man widely credited with steering Canada through the financial crisis and the Great Recession is leaving the country. Now Mark Carney takes on an even bigger job, repairing a shattered hub of international finance. 
Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, shocked the banking world on Monday by announcing in Parliament that Mr. Carney, Canada's central bank governor since 2008, will assume the same post at the Bank of England next July. The move parachutes the 47-year-old native of Fort Smith Northwest Territories into one of the most important roles in the global world of finance. He is quite simply the best, most experienced, and most qualified person in the world to do this job, Mr. Osborne said. It goes on from there, but again, it has to be stressed just how bizarre this story is and the fact that apparently, yes, a Canadian, the Canadian central bank governor, Mark Carney, is going to be parachuted into the, 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 the right in the, I guess, the snake pit, the den of vipers, the, the very head there in the city of London, the Bank of England. He's going to become the governor of the Bank of England. That's a pretty bizarre move, and I believe the first time in history that something like that has happened. And it does definitely make me wonder about Mark Carney and his connections in his past. And in fact, I have had my eye on Carney for a few years now, but I just assumed that maybe I'm just reading things into it because I'm Canadian, so I'm particularly attuned to Canadian politics. But no, it seems that Carney really is a player on the international scene and uh, definitely must have his connections and skeletons in the closet. So it's with that in mind that I'm going to attempt to do an investigation of Carney and some of his connections in the coming weeks on Corbett Report, probably in the form of a podcast or maybe even here on the radio show. So if there's anyone out there in the audience who has more information about Carney and uh, some of his connections and, and his past, by all means, send the links in through the Corbett Report contact form at CorbettReport.com. Once again, I'm always happy to receive all links, tips, information, criticisms, complaints, and feedback, and, and even positive glory. Reviews, anything that you want to send in through corporatereport.com. Again, unfortunately, I can't guarantee a personal reply to everyone, but I do try to read everything that comes in. So, once again, thank you all for tuning in for tonight's edition. I know it's been a hectic whirlwind tour of the world, but that's what we aim to do here from time to time. And tomorrow night, we're going to be talking to Niall Bowie of nilbowie.blogspot.com, who I was just spending last week with in Kuala Lumpur. And uh, we'll be talking about the Kuala Lumpur 9-11 conference, the commission hearing on Palestine, various things that are happening in Malaysia. Also, some of uh, Niall Bowie's upcoming tour that he's going to be doing in uh, China and North Korea. So that should be an interesting conversation. I hope you'll stay tuned for that. Once again, 23 hours from now, same time, same channel. I hope you'll be there. Until then, thank you all for listening to tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio, and take care.